If you would, turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, we'll be reading today through uh, 14, all the way down to verse 20, 29. You know, we all get to a point in our life, every human being, where we have to come to an answer to the question, who is Jesus? Not who is Jesus to you, that's what a lot of people want to ask. Who, who is Jesus to you? But who is Jesus? And do you submit to the truth of who he is and the way that he has revealed himself in God's word? I was challenged this morning in our scripture reading in Acts chapter 9, thinking about our passage in the sermon this morning and being reminded that it was the apostle Paul who was called Saul, who had to come to the same question. This was a man who rejected Jesus, who persecuted those who followed Christ, and yet when it came to Jesus appearing to him, he, he said to him or asked the question, Who are you, Lord? And it was there where he understood and his mind and his understanding was opened to not a... Um, basically to a, a, a proper understanding or a truth of who Jesus was. Paul had misinterpreted who Jesus was. As many people in our world, in our society today. And so this passage today is, is pretty unique. It's pretty unique because I think it, it, I was very tempted to make this passage today about John the Baptist. And you'll see that in a minute. But as we know and understand about Scripture, all Scripture points to Christ. And so we have to see in our passage this morning, what does this passage, this story, this unique narrative about John the Baptist and, and him losing his life, what does this have to do with Jesus? And so it was kind of fun to figure that out. And, and, um, and that's kind of what we're here today to do, to discover the true Jesus and then to ask ourselves, do we really believe and trust in him? Many people throughout Christian history have tried to discover Jesus, to make Jesus who they want him to be. This week, or actually last week, I had this strange email from a random person that I've never met in my life trying to sell me essential oils. But his, his sales pitch in selling me essential oils was his mission to make a greater human race of peoples through the natural elements of essential oils. And that by making this, this greater race of people, he was doing so for the Lord Jesus. And in describing his belief in the Lord Jesus, he told me, or he wrote in his email, and we, we had some interchange back and forth, he told me that Jesus was one of the high manifestations of God, as were all the other religions and gods that he had uh, studied. That they were all culminating in God. Jesus was just one form of that God. So as I guess uh, in his belief would be Muhammad and, and, uh, and Buddha and others. 
And so we, we kind of had this interchange where I told him that, that he was believing the lies of Satan, that he was trying to mesh together all these religions into one universal belief that all paths make their way to God, and that he was confused about the identity of who Jesus was. He was not one form of God. He was not one manifestation of God. He is the one true God. He is the second person of the Trinity manifested for us and, and brought, sent to this world so that we could see who God is. And so we must believe in Christ alone as the only true Redeemer, the only true Messiah, the only way of salvation. I think that's what Paul discovered on the road to Damascus. And I think it's the question that people throughout the life of Jesus and as they encountered him, that's the question that they were having to answer. Particularly in our story today, King Herod. So let's read this passage and see how these things point to Christ. Mark chapter 6, 14 says, King Herod, let me read in my Bible and not my notes. It says, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some had said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had been sent and seized, uh, who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask for me whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And, And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And and she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in and immediately with haste to the king said, or asked and saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went in and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and they took his body and they laid it in a tomb. How in the world does this passage teach us about the Lord Jesus? Well, if you'll notice with me, first of all, it's this very question of who Jesus is and his identity that leads back to uh, a flashback, this historical event that's already happened in the life of Jesus' ministry. And Mark flashes back to this 
as he's reminded of John the Baptist and the profession, I guess you could say, uh, from Herod's lips that Jesus is the resurrected John the Baptist. So, so basically Mark is, is doing what oftentimes Mark does in his gospel. It's called a Markin sandwich. So you got your two slices of bread and then whatever you put in the middle of that bread, hopefully it's not pimento cheese because that is disgusting to me. And the Markin sandwich here is starting in verse 6, or starting in chapter 6, verse 1, you have the rejection of Jesus at Nazareth. You have his own personal rejection of his family, of his, uh, of his friends, of the people that loved him, that he ministered to, that he grew up with. He's rejected there, right? And then in verse 7, it builds even more, and he's sending out his apostles. And now we're seeing them being sent out, and they're going and doing the ministry uh, that, that he has demonstrated for them. So those are the, the first, that's the first slice of bread. And then the midst of the slice of bread is, is the meat. And this is the, the idea of, of John the Baptist being the one who demonstrated the things of the kingdom, the the truth of the kingdom, the proclamations of the kingdom. And the result of the proclamations of the kingdom was his own very death, which in Matthew we learned was promised to all those who follow Jesus. So the the example of the work of ministry and, and that which was demonstrated by Christ himself is that as we go and proclaim the truth of God's kingdom, we will eventually at some point be persecuted even if we lose our very lives, which is an example, the example given here is John the Baptist. And then the sandwich ends in verse 30. Just in that one sentence where it says, and the apostles returned to Jesus and told them that all that they had done and taught. So it's kind of like ministry encapsulated for us. The Lord rejected, the disciples going out and no doubt being rejected, and then coming back. And in between that is an example of people rejected or a person rejected for the for the proclamation of the truth of God's kingdom. And so the idea here this morning is is that we need to look at our lives and and understand that truth, understand that promise as we've talked about in the last three weeks. Brother David reminded us last week that it is the, the laborers of the harvest that we are called to be. That we should, uh, that the God has, has prepared the harvest and we're to go in and, and bring the harvest. And as Jesus sends out his laborers, and by the way, we are those laborers, right? We are the ones that uh, are called to do the work of the ministry. We also will go out and we will face the persecution. We will face the struggle and the trial. Why? Because we're proclaiming the truth. Not just because we, look, we can bear the label of Christian and never face persecution. You know why? Because mo- many Christians will bear the name of Christ, but never really proclaim truth. And so when we are not proclaiming truth, we won't face persecution. Because there's nothing, there's nothing necessarily that's engaging or opposing the enemy. Matter of fact, in this culture, 
It's very normal to call ourselves Christians, right? Socially. But when we proclaim the truth, when we stand up for the error of this world and the worldviews of this world, that's when persecution comes. Matter of fact, uh, John MacArthur writes a, a little booklet called What's God's Will for Your Life? It's this little bitty booklet. And, and one of the questions that he asks, and he, like every good preacher, alliterates for us so that we can help, it can help us remember, is, is everything begins with an S. And one of the questions that we must ask as we're living our Christian life and, and, and asking ourselves, are we living according to God's will is, the question is, are you suffering for Christ? So he says, are you saved and, and, and are you sanctified? Are you filled with God's spirit? But one of the questions is, are you suffering for him? And it doesn't mean that we go and seek suffering, but it means that when we stand upon the proclamation of the truth of God, we will suffer. And it all starts with the question in our lives, like the Apostle Paul or, or Saul before that, who is Jesus to us? Because when our minds have been opened to believe in Christ, when we attribute him not to just a prophet from the Old Testament, but that he is truly the Son of God, and our minds are so changed that our worldview and our motivations and our actions change. And we want to proclaim him. In Mark chapter 6, it says, King Herod heard of it. Meaning he heard of the, the work of Jesus Christ and, and the work of these apostles that have not now gone out in, in, in the, the ministry of the gospel. They're going out and they're healing and they're casting out demons. And guess what? King Herod was a very anxious man. And he heard about it. He was always concerned like his father before him. He was always concerned of an uprising among the Jews. Now, just so you know, this is, um, this is Herod Antipas. If you're a historian, um, you would know that there were uh, many Herods in that line, like, kind of like the Caesars. Herod the Great was the one we know uh, that, when, that was reigning when Jesus was, was born that sought out to kill the baby Jesus. He was a ruler in the, in the realm under the authority of Rome. He had been given jurisdiction and rule over Galilee and Perea and these areas. He enjoyed many things, including having many wives. And in, in the midst of having many wives, he had many children. And oftentimes we find in history that the children of, of Herod the Great were oftentimes fighting over the, the, the rule and the reign that came from this title that he bore. And from that, one of his sons was Herod Antipas, who we see mentioned in this passage in Mark chapter 6. Now, we have to understand that Herod Antipas was not really truly a king. He was more of a ruler. He was more of like a regional governor over areas, particularly where the Jews lived. And it was there um, in Herod Antipas's life that he met his brother's, um, 
he met his brother's wife. His, his half-brother Philip, had a, they shared a different mother. He met his wife Herodias and fell in love with her, which leads to this very conflict that we're going to read today. And so as Herod begins to hear of the work of Christ, he's trying to figure out, he's trying to identify and and rationalize who this Jesus is. He's wanting to, to quell any uprising that may come from fanatics or zealots that may ra- rise up and stir up the Jews and, and in stirring up the Jews may cause him problems in his region, which would cause him problems for Rome. Because when the Jews in his region are upset and causing riot and disruption, the people in Rome that are over Herod will hear about it and be displeased. So a lot of these Herods and, and these, these rulers, they, they lived in fear. And so we see then that Herod and, and others are trying to figure out who is Jesus. We read that, that some consider Jesus just an Old Testament prophet. If you'll remember with me, Before Jesus was born, at the conclusion of the Old Testament, there was a large gap, hundreds of years, where the the Jewish people had not heard from God. They had not heard a a word spoken. They were not given revelation. There was a silence. And and as as we've gone through the Gospels, as we started the Gospels, one of the first things that we read is this prophecy by Zechariah where he goes in and he's worshiping as a priest and an angel visits him and tells him. We, we have this initial speaking again of the Lord, speaking to Zechariah, proclaiming not only John the Baptist being born, but that John the Baptist would be the forerunner of the Messiah who is to come. You guys remember that? And so... As the the story of Christ unfolds, John the Baptist becomes this forerunner of the Lord Jesus. He becomes another one of the great prophets of old. After there had been this silence for 400 years, all of a sudden, now there's someone coming and proclaiming the kingdom, proclaiming the Messiah once again. So there was an excitement. And Jesus comes on the scene and he begins to do things that even John the Baptist is not doing. There were not miraculous works assigned to John the Baptist. But Herod in his unregenerate mind is trying to figure out, could this be John the Baptist who, I'm, uh, who I've beheaded? Could this be Elijah the prophet? Who is this Jesus? And we ask ourselves that same question. And we come to believe this morning, many of us believe that Jesus Christ was greater than any Old Testament prophet. He was the fulfillment of all Old Testament prophets. That all their miraculous work, all the things that they did for God and his glory, all pointed to the great fulfilling prophet in Jesus Christ. And we've talked about how Jesus 
can be seen in Moses and he can be seen in Jeremiah and he can be seen in Malachi. He can be seen in all the works of the Old Testament prophets because they all point to him. As Jesus said in Luke 24, all of the, all of the scriptures point to me or they speak of me. And so when John the Baptist comes on the scene, there becomes confusion because John the Baptist is asked in his ministry, are you the Christ? And he's quick to say, no, no, no. I'm not the Christ. I'm not, un- I'm not even worthy to tie the sandals of the Lord Jesus. And so as this story goes into a kind of a, a narrative of, of, his, of his enemies, the enemies of Jesus, trying to figure out who Jesus is. But remember that in the life of Christ, not only did his enemies question who he was, but his family and friends questioned who he was. Remember in Luke chapter 7, Luke chapter 7, verse 20, we, we read that, that even in the midst of John the Baptist's ministry, where we'll read in a minute how he was arrested and imprisoned before he was killed, there's a point where that Jesus is out ministering and John the Baptist sends his disciples out to figure out and ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come? Meaning, are you the Messiah? It's so interesting, even John begins to have his doubts about what had been prophesied for him to do, to be the forerunner of the Messiah. Even John himself was the one that baptized Jesus, knowing that he was the Messiah. And yet we see this this questioning of doubt between, from his own followers, his own friends or family members. You'll remember with me, even Peter Jesus asks his disciples, he says, um, who do people say the Son of Man is? And, and, and some, the disciples reply, well, some, some say John the Baptist, and, and others say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah, and one of the prophets. And it's Peter filled by the Spirit and, and given the words that, that says, no, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And of course, you'll remember even at his, uh, I guess at his trial, we could call it, where he's standing before Pilate. When he's standing before the, the, this ruler uh, of that region of, for Rome, it says that Jesus stood before him as the governor. And even Pilate asks, are you the king of the Jews? So how are we to know And believe in this Jesus. Well, there's a lot of truth revealed in the scriptures, in the, in the Old Testament that point to Jesus, in the New Testament, where Jesus is, uh, he not only teaches others that he is God in the flesh, but he demonstrates his deity for us. Because if we are to believe in Jesus, we cannot believe in Jesus based upon what other people want us to believe. We cannot believe in Jesus because of the social pressures to believe in him. Brother, you got to believe in Jesus because you live in Tennessee, and that's what we do in Tennessee. 
We have to believe in, in Jesus because we truly believe he is the son of God. So let me introduce you to something that's been very helpful to me. It's written in a book called Putting Jesus in His Place by Robert Bowman. And, and Robert Bowman, and, and, um, he uses an acronym to help us think about how the scriptures teach us that Jesus is worthy to be followed and worshipped because he is the Son of God. And how do the scriptures reveal his deity to us? This author, Robert Bowman, gives us an acronym that spells the word HANDS, H-A-N-D-S, to help us remember how Scripture reveals the deity of Christ for us. Because when we believe in his deity, we believe in him. The H for HANDS, the HANDS acronym, stands for Jesus deserves the honors due to only God. The honors due only to God. In other words, what this means is that throughout the life of Christ, the Gospels reveal to us that people worshipped Jesus as God. They gave him the honor due to his name. Matter of fact, I, I, I put some uh, some printouts back there where this is really laid out in a, in a chart format where it, it gives two columns. One are the, the honors due to God's name in the Old Testament, and then equally the honors due to Christ as he walked the earth. That he was worthy to be worshipped. That people fell, fell down and worshipped him and glorified him. So the honors due to his name. Not only the honors, but Jesus shares the attributes that only God can possess. The honors and the attributes. Meaning that God did things that only God does. Only God can forgive sin. Only God can raise from the dead. Only God can heal the blind. Make the the mute speak. Control the very things of nature and creation. Possess forgiveness and mercy and grace. The attributes. Number three, Jesus is given the names that are only given to God. Remember Jesus referred to himself as I am. Remember he is called the the Lord. He is called the Son of God. These names that, that would be blasphemous to, to, to call anyone else. So the honors, the attributes, the names. Number four, the deeds, which goes in, in kind of in, in correlation with the attributes. The very things that, God, that Jesus did, only God can perform. Only God can do in this world to show his power, to show his omniscience, that he knows all things. That he can look into the life of the Samaritan woman and know exactly the sin that she's struggling with. To look at the life of the rich young ruler and know what sin he's covering up that he's holding so tightly to that he cannot exhibit faith. The very deeds of Christ show his deity. So the honors, the attributes, the names, the deeds, and lastly, the seat. 
Jesus possesses a seat on the throne of God. He is given this authority and he is given this place of honor at the right hand of God in a, in a way to show us that he is not a mere, just a mere man or a mere prophet sent from God, that he is the son of God who sits in the place of honor. And so as Herod struggled with the identity of Christ, and many of the followers of Jesus even struggled, his family struggled, I wonder this morning, do you believe in Jesus because you are convinced he is the Son of God? Or do you just believe in him because of some outward or external pressure to believe in him? It was that very question that led to my salvation when I was in college. Because I came to realize that I was only believing in Jesus because it was something that I was supposed to do, that my family wanted me to do, that I was raised to do, but I didn't really truly understand and believe and depend upon and surrender to the very deity of God in my life. I didn't really even contemplate the fact that I needed God. And so Jesus is not John the Baptist. Jesus is not Elijah. Jesus is not Jeremiah or Isaiah or Moses or Abraham. He's better than all these men. He is perfect in every way. He is the greater prophet who proclaimed the truth. He is the truth. And so you should believe in him because of these honors and attributes and names and deeds and the seat that he sits on because he's worthy for you to believe in him. I think it's also very interesting that in identifying Jesus, Herod says and considers that he is John the Baptist resurrected from the dead He's like, oh, I killed John the Baptist, and this man is doing these amazing works for God, so this must be John the Baptist raised from the dead. How ironic is that? It's, It's actually a foreshadowing of what Christ would do. Remember, John the Baptist is a representative of the kingdom, but not the fullest representative of the kingdom. John the Baptist is considered to have raised from the dead, but it's actually Jesus, the Son of God, who will be raised from the dead. So in our, in our rational and logical thinking, if Herod, in an unregenerate mind, would believe that just a prophet of God could be raised from the dead, then surely he could believe that the Son of God would be raised from the dead, right? And yet he doesn't. That just shows us in this foreshadowing of Jesus the power that has to come upon us to open our minds to believe in Christ. It's amazing the people throughout history that have the evidence of the deity and the works of Jesus Christ laid before them and then they scream, crucify him, crucify him. And so in identifying Jesus, my 
prayer for you this morning is that you would believe in him because he is the sinless son of God. Because he is the only sacrifice for our sins. That he died to pay for the forgiveness of sins that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day to defeat sin and death and to reconcile us back to God. My prayer this morning is that you would not give in to the social pressures of believing in Jesus, but you would examine your own life and see how much you need Christ. He is your only salvation. Now to the story of Herod and what I call the New Testament soap opera. See, we flash back in Mark chapter 6, verse 17, to this story of how John the Baptist dies. And I think John has given us in Mark uh, chapter 2, John has given us kind of the beginning of this story because he tells us that Jesus was uh, beginning to minister. I'm sorry, in Mark chapter 1, verse 14, that Jesus was beginning to minister, but it says, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel. And we don't really, we don't really have an ending to that story. So now in Mark chapter 6, he gives us the ending to that story. Somewhere in the chronologic, chronological timeline of Jesus' ministry, John is arrested and, and, and then is, is executed. So by Mark chapter 6, John has been dead, and we are now looking back and flashing back to this very strange way that John lost his life. As I told you, Herod fell in love with not only his brother's wife, but this was actually his niece. They, con they convince one another to, to leave their spouses, and they join together and be become husband and wife. And as Herod being a Jewish ruler and, and leader in this area, John the prophet was not going to stand for the sinfulness of a religious Jewish leader who has clearly who was clearly violating the law of God. In the Old Testament in Leviticus chapter 20, it tells John the Baptist and it tells us that if a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness. They shall be childless. And listen, John the Baptist was committed to the truth of the kingdom. And so he goes and he begins to proclaim the sinfulness of this leader and his wife. It's a bold claim. And in the midst of this claim, he is arrested and eventually killed. And what it teaches us is that as we represent Christ, as we live for Christ, as we uh, live in such a way that our lives point to Christ, we have to understand what John the Baptist understood, and that is that truth agitates the sinful heart. It agitates it. It is sandpaper 
against sandpaper. In verse 17, it says that that it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison. Why? For the sake of Herodias. This was a ruler who was being led by his wife because of the hatred that she had for John. And why did she hate John? Because John stood up for the truth of God's kingdom. John said, this is the law. This is how we're to live. We are to be holy before our God. And you, brother, as a leader in this community, are living against the law of God. And of course, the power of that truth began to grind against the conscience of Herodias. That that hatred began to fill up in her to the point that she says, I want him arrested. And she began to plan his own murder. Verse 19 says that Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted him put to death. It wasn't enough to satisfy her hatred for him to be in prison. Why? Because he could still speak truth. She was so agitated. And this is what the truth does for us, right? The truth agitates our lives. It it bears against the sinfulness. It exposes the darkness by the light of, of the truth of the gospel. And we respond in one of two ways. We respond in anger and hate, or we receive and respond in, in repentance. Another way, we respond by going toward God, or we go away from him. So as we believers, as we disciples of the Lord Jesus who have clearly identified Christ as the Son of God, as our Lord, as our King, then we should see in the life of John the Baptist what we saw most fully in the life of Jesus, that he was going to stand for the truth, that he was going to proclaim the kingdom boldly, even if it meant his own death. In Jeremiah 26, the Lord reminds Jeremiah to stand in the court of the Lord's house and to speak to all the cities of Judah that come to worship in the house of the Lord. All the words that I command you to speak to them, do not hold back a word. It's really, really easy for us as believers in our own personal lives to be willing to preach the good news of the gospel, to preach the whole counsel of scripture to other people, but we're very selective about what we want to read when it comes to our own lives. Yeah, I'm not really going to go to that chapter because that chapter deals with a lot of things that maybe I don't want to talk about or... Or we're confronting someone in our, in our, in our family or in our friends and our, in our, our sphere of influence. And again, we're confronted with, are we going to hold back a, a word? Are we going to proclaim the truth boldly? 
regardless of the consequences. That's what Paul did in Acts chapter 20. Paul is reminding the Ephesian elders he's leaving that church and, and he's kind of giving his, his, um, his commissioning speech to these elders of the church of Ephesus. And he reminds them in, in Acts chapter 20, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and, and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus. And now I, behold, am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, or nor uh, as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Brothers and sisters, let's be, let's be vigilant in our obedience to the Lord Jesus to not shrink back from declaring the gospel of God boldly, not only to others, but first to ourselves. That we would speak the truth in love to ourselves, not, glo- not glossing over the words that were first written to us before they were written to other people around us. But that as we go, to declare the truth of God's word, we would be reminded by the Apostle Peter who says that we should be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason of the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. As we are pointing our lives in the same direction that Christ lived as John the Baptist lived, we would be those standing upon the truth, knowing the truth agitates the sinful heart, and yet be willing to proclaim it boldly first to ourselves and others in love. But also notice in this unique story of John the Baptist, the favor that God had for him in the midst of suffering. The favor in verse 19 of chapter 6. As, as Herodias was willing to persecute this man for speaking the truth, in God's favor, it says that, that she could not do anything because Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and, and he kept him safe. 
And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Now, Matthew tells it a little different. He says that, that, he feared, that Herod feared the Jews, meaning that he feared a, a political uprising. Mark seems to go more on the moral sense and say that Herod just feared John, and it, it could very well be both things. His fear was not a belief in Christ. It was more of like a self-preservation of his own rule and reign. And regardless, it was an act of God's favor for John because there John is in prison for however amount of years or, or a time between his arrest and the time that Jesus is ministering and then his, his uh, beheading. And I can only imagine the countless amount of times that John is in prison proclaiming the truth. And so in verse 20, I, I, it's easy for us to see God's favor upon John in the midst of suffering. And we have to ask ourselves, well, is that any, is, does that bear any, at any other place in Scripture? Well, yes. Think about the other examples of God's protection and, and, and favor in the midst of suffering upon his people. Joseph's protection in Egypt. Israel multiplying even as slaves in Egypt. Daniel's favor before Nebuchadnezzar. Esther's hearing before uh, the king. God is continually working out his purposes and his plan through his people. And, and in the midst of your suffering and your trial for proclaiming the truth, God has favor upon those who proclaim his kingdom. Now, we see John eventually lost his life, but when we trust in the, the favor of God and, and the, or the grace of God, we, we know that even if we lose our lives, we've gained much more. But lastly, as we think about this story of John the Baptist and, and how we can see Christ there, the ending of this story clearly teaches us one thing. Sin never stops. It must be destroyed. This is, the, this is a horrible ending for a hero story if we're just resting upon John the Baptist, Right? This isn't, a, this isn't the, the nighttime story that you're excited to tell your kids about. Unless you're, you know, Peter's your son and he probably would think that beheading is pretty cool. But we, we would find the culmination of sin starting with the wrath of Herodias to imprison John the Baptist but then we see sin inflamed and enraging even more leading up to his death. In verse 21, it says an opportunity came. Came for who? It came for Herodias. When Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and his military commanders and the leader, the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give to you up to half my kingdom. 
She went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. She came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry because of his oaths and his guests uh, that he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went, beheaded him in prison, and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. What a tragic story to remind us. Not of just the cost of following Christ, but just to the the end of sin. That sin continues to corrupt, it continues to enrage, that, that we cannot alleviate sin, it will destroy us. That is the root of every one of us. If, if we are here today, and right now we struggle with hate over something or someone, we cannot have any other understanding about the future of that sin than thinking that that sin will destroy us. That that hate, like Cain's hate for Abel, or Herodias' hate for John the Baptist, it will lead to not only someone's destruction, but our destruction. And so sin never stops. It must be destroyed. So this great, uh, this grave story of John the Baptist points us to Jesus because we see that regardless of the sensuality of a, a dancing daughter or the manipulation of this ruling queen or the, the selfishness and the, the political zeal of King or this ruler Herod, regardless of all the sin laced, uh, items of this story, we understand that Jesus Christ gives us hope in the midst of tragedy. Jesus is the one who destroys sin. Jesus is the one who has come as the redeemer of people and the forgiver of sin. And I believe that John the Baptist understood that. His doubting in, in Luke chapter 6 it doesn't mean he did not believe in Jesus because it was John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, who prophesied about the Lord Jesus. In Luke chapter 1, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Listen, you're here today. Your greatest enemy is not at work. Your greatest enemy is not someone in your family or your neighbor or anybody that even exists on this earth. Your greatest enemy is sin and death. And Satan wants to take those things and he wants to use them to destroy you so that you can live eternally suffering for the wrath or suffering for your sin with the wrath of God. Satan finds joy in those who end their lives, in joy of those who wallow in sin because he knows that they are on their way to destruction. 
And up until the point of the road of Damascus, Satan was reveling in the, the, the destruction of, the, of Saul and the church until Jesus saves and transforms that man. And everything changes. It didn't change at the road of Damascus for all of us. It changes as the, as, at the resurrection Jesus dies upon the cross, is buried, raises from the dead. The victory is won. Sin is stopped. We can be forgiven and and have the payment of our sins paid for. So that even if a man like John the Baptist, believing in Jesus as the Messiah, having faith in him, has no reason to fear, even if his head is removed from his body. We have hope because of Christ. And not just a future hope, but a present hope. Not only that God will will save me from the judgment of my sin in the future, but he will save you from the power of sin over your life today. We don't just live in some future promise. We live in a a reality today and in the future of all that Christ has done for us through his death, burial, and resurrection. Salvation, forgiveness, reconciliation, spiritual change. And ultimately, we remember, as we learned two weeks ago, that John the Baptist's fate, Stephen's fate, many Christian martyred saints throughout the histories, their fate could very well be ours. And if you're in a prison cell, like this pastor from Russia that I read about, and where actually I saw the movie called The Insanity of God, And he describes this pastor who was in a Russian prison. And every day he was beaten for his faith in Christ. All he had to do was renounce Christ. And for years he would not renounce Christ. And his hope was to rest in Christ every day. And so he, this pastor's name was Dimitri, and he would stand at the window and he would sing worship songs out loud to this prison and the people would, would be, they were so, all these inmates were so enraged at him and they would, they would cuss him and they would, they would be so angry with him. And for years, he not only felt the abuse of uh, these prison guards beating him time after time for not recounting Christ, but everyone around him was enraged because the truth of God and the things that he was singing were agitating their conscience. And the story climaxes to this man in his prison cell and the guards dragging a woman down the hallway of his prison cell who looks just like this man's wife. And they are telling him that that we have taken your wife down and we are going to execute her if you will renounce Christ. And he refuses. And, and, And to his knowledge, they execute his wife in that prison. And he is broken and he is, he is torn, but he is not willing to refuse Christ or renounces the, the love that he has for Christ. 
And the next day is his execution. And as they come to carry him off and and take his life, the Holy Spirit takes a hold of that entire prison. And every inmate in that prison begins to sing the worship songs that he had sung every day in that prison cell. Men that were enraged by the very things and the words that he was saying are now all singing in unison this song glorifying God. And so we ask ourselves, could we really endure such tribulation and such pain if we believe in Jesus because our parents want us to believe in him? Could we really stand firm, believing and and holding tightly to Christ if people were willing to kill our own family members? If we believe he's the son of God, if he is the one worthy to receive our praise and our worship, if he is the one, the only one who can save us, then we will believe. But if we are clinging to Christ by other, any other means besides true faith in his deity and his work on the cross and his resurrection, if we are not believing in those things, then we are lost and in need of Jesus. And we will fall away from any faith that we have demonstrated in this world because it's not true faith. John the Baptist is not worthy to be worshipped. He is one of many men that lost his life trusting in, believing in the Messiah. Jesus is worthy of our worship.